Criminal Magic, Chapter 28, Part 1. Thursday, 2034, GMT-8. What now remains is merely sweet perversion, quarantined among the unwell, and revered among the powerful. Somehow, the explosives don't really surprise Coordinator. As the heavy crumping of the devices follow the first blinding flash of light up into the heavy timber surrounding the encampment below, Coordinator finds herself standing upright while continuing to move downhill. All the others in her squad are still tight to the solid earth, weapons at the ready, certain that the ambush they've anticipated has at last settled on them. But Coordinator doesn't hesitate. She's not a buyer. By now, she knows something's wrong with the target, and it's pissing her off. Here I am, she thinks, loaded for bear, so jacked on adrenaline I could fuel a small car, and that out-of-whack son-of-a-bitch Kohler is playing us like a wading pool catfish. She can feel, without doubt, they've been sandbagged. She forces herself to focus on the work at hand, getting down the hill, into the lab complex, in one piece. Another series of enormous explosions rocks the volcanic valley below. As she blitzes down the hillside, one arm leans into the sketchy slide as the other holds her breast needler high. She catches a glimpse of the lake surface, aglow with reflections of orange and yellow vapor clouds. High test fuel bombs, shit. The trees immediately surrounding the lakeside lab burst into flames. About 200 meters from the site, her foot catches on something lying along the hill, and she stumbles, twisting the event into a somersault. She lands on her belly, sliding downhill, but facing up into the shifting scree. Whatever she tripped on comes sliding downhill as well, stopping just as it reaches her. She finds herself looking directly into the startled eyes of a dead woman. Close in! Close in! she yells, blasting the thorax reader with an angry shout. A cascading series of explosions rips the night again, making it impossible for her to hear her own frustration. Watch your asses as you come in, she tells the team. Masks on! Anybody who would booby-trap their own sight would just as soon gash you as look. She's the first one of the team to step into the meadows that sets itself at the heart of the lab complex. The dead are everywhere, lying where they fell, their bodies cemented by death in mid-gesture. It's Vesuvius. The whole scene, the cold platter of the lakeside meadow, the shuddering impromptu gaslight effect of burning buildings makes her think of pre-Columbian tapestry designs from the Nazca people depicting similar grotesqueries. Hmm, nothing changes. Two thousand years, countless chances to reform the human condition, and still this. Half a dozen of her own people are advancing in a low crouch on the remains of buildings shattered by explosions. One places a low, hunker-like stump of a building off to the west side is still belching flame from its rifle slits and shattered doorways. Coordinator identifies it from the SAT surveys as the armory. She corrects herself. X-armory. She steps carefully around two young men lying face down on the gravel. Her heads-up register tells her there are gas emitters poking up like sprinkler heads here and there across the opening. It also says most of them are spent. Come on, come on, she yells. Her commands are shrill, reflecting anger and impatience. She bends to examine a tall woman whose glasses do nothing to hide a last expression of wide-eyed surprise. Her mask makes it impossible for her to take in the scent of the place but experience tells her the whole glade stinks of shit. Death by gas, voided bowels. The bodies aren't even cold yet. 
According to her infrasensors, none of the dead she can see have stopped signing the heat register, not by a long shot. This massacre just happened. Fuck me. Counter by last, she barks, swing out east, scan the hillsides for infrared telltales. The horse is out of the barn. Once more, pull back, down east. We're after runners. And we're close, she thinks, as she sprints toward the tree line. Very fucking close. She runs full speed through the center of the cleared meadow, lifting her feet so as to avoid another unfortunate collision with the dead. The map in her heads up flips to an aerial close-up of the quadrant. They'll move most quickly to the low point, the creek. Follow the creek! As she moves toward the eastern skirt of the opening, she notices a dry cell battery in the grass. Several thin copper lines extended out from it, radiating toward four quarters of the compass. Explosive exasperation mixes with a mist of jealous envy. God damn that son of a bitch. She breaks into a tree line and begins running along the downhill path. As she runs, she snags a headlamp from her pack and settles it over her hair. Fuck running blind. I'll go back to the dark when I'm right on top of them. Collie Gray appears out of nowhere beside her, matching her stride for stride, as if she were trotting the dogs. She can see Luz, Pill, and Tom boiling onto the flat from the south, leading a small group of aiders. Luz doesn't appear to be armed, but at this point, coordinator's not surprised by that. The girl's got balls. Thursday, 2037, GMT-8. Running sets Answer's head into a meditative rhythm. The sweep of each breath settles the soft cloth of tranquility over his spirit. No anxiety. His feet, long accustomed to making their way over rough, unfamiliar terrain, find solid footing even though there is little light falling on the deer trail scratched out through the woods. Some sections of the path are so dark, Answer can see better by closing his eyes and letting the energy guiding his feet discern the way for him. There is a certain danger that accompanies this strategy, but Answer has done it before. In this particular case, trust is a reliable tool. In the distance, he hears the first of his own ordinance going up. After the first explosion, there are others, the booby traps. A feeling of satisfaction runs through him as he realizes that his guess was right. It took him three minutes to wire up the flash bulbs to clumps of matches bound together with rubber bands. He set three flash sticks on the bundles running up to the lab building, figured setting it on fire would ensure nobody from coordinator's team would get blown to shit because of their curiosity. The last line he wired flashed to match to flare with the added bonus of having the camp's fuel cylinder taped to the flare. He set the fuel can just a few centimeters below the top of the flare, giving himself about three minutes to get clear of the place. He ditched the pack and left everything but the remaining flare, a knife in his nine mil, light and fast. Go big or don't go, as Renee used to say. The mountains rattle and reverberate with concussive brachiation of successive blasts, like heaven clearing its throat. He hopes Coordinator and her people, or he thinks they are, well clear of the place when it starts popping. He figures blowing the camp up will save them time figuring things out. This, to his way of thinking, is about as close to team spirit as he's ever likely to get. Backups on the way? Just don't want them to be in the way. The trail jukes sharply lower, switching back every hundred or so meters. As it falls, it gets narrower, increasingly rutted. A lot fewer people out here now the Indu boys control the uplands watershed as security measures. No recreation. Answer throws his spectral self out ahead, probing the near-perfect darkness with pulses of energy. He runs headlong into the night with the certainty 
of a long-legged cat. Thursday, 2038, GMT-8. Gassing the others was Elaine Hill's contribution. Up to the time she'd suggested it, still was uncertain about how exactly he and his people were going to manage the elimination of the others. It could have been a logistics nightmare getting everyone assembled and pacified. Elaine's solution was so, how would Kohler say it? Elegant. The ten of them were the only ones with masks. Everyone else would die within 60 seconds. There'd be no warning. The only chance for fuss might come when they took over the security building, and that problem had never materialized. Trust and familiarity had opened the door for them. Tripwires and gas bladders took care of the West Slope sentry team, and Florence Hazlitt killed the two men on patrol with her on the East Side Trail. The whole thing was over in less than five minutes. It set the lab and security buildings, the mess hall and living quarters up to self-destruct the first time anyone set foot inside one of the buildings and stepped out of there. All very sanitary. There'd been another plan. Still had the whole thing mapped out. How they would take over the encampment, how the others would be killed. And it was all supposed to happen tomorrow, but still didn't trust anyone. So he'd told the others just that morning that the time had come. Time to pull the trigger, he told them. And with one minor glitch, that's how it played out. Originally, there were 11 people who would survive the betrayal. Still, the anonymous schoolboy who remained hidden on the East Slope for days now, drugged with hypnotics and unaware of his future, and nine others. But at the last moment, Morgenthau, the intensely nervous and brilliant molecular biologist, had an attack of morals. It proved fatal. Thursday, 2042, GMT minus eight. As Answer moves, he remembers back to standing on the skirt edge of the scimitar-shaped clearing that was the camp, having the chance to absorb the feeling of the effect of evil's capricious hand and witness the random distribution of bodies, the careless pleasure of the dead. Standing there, he'd been aware the only place there'd be a concern about tripwires, pressure-release booby traps, was under the bodies and close to or inside the buildings. Those who'd killed the others were interested in efficiency. No more time than was absolutely necessary would have been spent on preparing the place to penalize the next in line for being first to discover the carnage of disgrace left behind. I'm a lucky son of a bitch, Answer thinks, as he realizes there could easily have been low-lying pockets of gas still clinging to the cold ground at the lab site when he arrived. But then there was that single stellar jay he'd seen breaking across the meadow. What it was doing out at night was beyond him. If it was still in the air, the gas had to be gone. They're heading for Ross Lake, he thinks. Gotta get him before they make it. His strides lengthen, and despite the saturated darkness, he picks up speed. The brittle dry of winter cold lacerates his nose and throat. Each breath introduces volumes of sharp-edged air to his lungs. Despite extraordinary exertion, his heart rate never breaks 70. Thrall of a chase, the prospects for conflict light him up. At this rate, he feels he could run all night. Of course, the fact that it's downhill doesn't hurt his feelings. In his mind, he sees the flash of a folio of photographs as a boy, a Life magazine he picked up in a dime thrift shop with a featured article on the Jonestown Massacre. Surprisingly, up until tonight, he has never personally seen the results of poison. He's not quite sure, but something in him, a thing usually kept quiet, silent by the very nature of his ordinary work, rebels against this particular savagery. Too creepy or 
evil one. Just plain chicken shit. That's it. Chicken shit. The images following him contaminate the pleasure of fresh air. The chase. He rejects them, but somehow they refuse to leave. Answer knew that K-Man was ruthless, but until now he didn't fully realize the uselessness of that word to describe this reality. He bends at the waist, practically slithering under a low-hanging branch that blocks the path, not quite stopping to whisk his knife across the surface of the tree trunk. What if the booby trapped the trail, he wonders. Ah, that's out. Not worth the bother. But the explosions? Doesn't matter if Kohler knows something's coming. At least he'll think he's got it beat. Answer realizes that Kohler's arrogance could wind up being his greatest ally. He seems always to have believed he was smarter than anybody else, and now the thing still is stuck with that character flaw as well. Answer recalls what Luz told him about the vision she'd had in the dreaming place, the vision of the man consumed by the crocodile. If Kohler gets to make his sacrifice, Answer thinks, but the effects of that are too dire to really contemplate. The lyrics from an ancient Dylan record in his collection spring from a file and unwind in his memory. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe says, God, you must be putting me on. God says, no. Abe said, what? God say, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe says, where you want this killing done? And answer thinks, this is nowhere near Highway 61. Thursday, 2043, GMT minus eight. An austere tangerine glow ricochets off the low cloud ceiling behind them, and the unnatural flash of illumination is followed immediately by a series of dull thumps. Keep moving, Dill shouts as he prods the slowest of the group with a stiff forearm between his shoulders. He is fully in command now. Patience is not a short walker characteristic that he is willing to cultivate. No attention behind. We've got a schedule to keep. Silva, you and Harden pick it up. The boy can move just fine. It's only his brain that isn't working. At a run, not a walk. It's very simple now. The others are coming. Still hopes the explosions indicate they've taken some losses, but ultimately, it doesn't matter. Some will have survived, and from now on, it's a foot race. He looks ahead at the pearly string of headlamps, men and women shapes moving down the hillside trail. His face breaks into an unwitting smile. These few are the new tribe. Each of them has blood on their hands, and now we are joined, fused to the same path by murder and betrayal. They were mine, still thinks, the minute they turned against the others. Despite this fact, there is some nagging whimsy of desire, an element of the short rocker aspect of his fused being that wishes that those hastening down the trail ahead were more directly related. Long bones, bred and born, hueso y sangre. But everything must have its beginning. They aren't moving fast enough, still races to the front of the line. Faster, he shouts back over his shoulder. We need to pick it up. Two steps later, he receives a scent on the wind, faint but unmistakable. Jaguar. Every molecule of his being jolts with a surge of energy, and his mind, a small but distinct desire to wait and engage the cat, glows like an ember, striving to burst into flame. The embodiment of the timeless contract between the two whose hunger for power and power itself appear and still his mind as a panoramic scroll of past events unwinding like panels on a prayer wheel. Jaguaros, San Pedro worshippers, Ayahuasqueros from the interior, Yoperos from across the plains, even Yacheas of the peyote cult have walked all the way from northern frontiers to sit and stand 
and the Galleria de Afrendas, encircling the initiates as the Amati ceremonies were conducted, the passage to Revelation. For centuries, the practice went unchanged, but there were always those greedy enough to want more, those who thought that San Pedro was a stingy teacher, not revealing the full possibilities of Amati. Eventually, under the influence of a shaman from the interior, a still leader of the Cayman cult, a small group of men murdered a boy and used the blood and soft tissue to effect a radical change in the Amati ceremony. This perversion of the use of human blood, the blood of another, not that of the seeker, resulted in the unexpected consequence, the extension of life. But this extraordinary prize brought with it corruption of the spirit. Aspiring to the divine, according to the ancients, spelled ruin. Consequences fell on Still and his followers. Once it was discovered they had desecrated the Galleria with their self-indulgence, they were condemned to death. As a group, they fled into the jungle where they organized and gathered more members, much as Still is doing now in a very different kind of forest. The situation is achingly familiar. Eventually, the Cayman cult became powerful enough to mount an attack on Shavin de Wantar, initiating an epoch of severe and unrelenting struggle for power. After 30 years of bloody conflict, they had succeeded in toppling the Hagueros and seized the pyramid complex. Loping down the hill mountain trail with the smell of Lake Ross's glacial waters clutching at his nostrils, still can practically feel the history clicking back into place. Flight into impenetrable jungle, eventual emergence, bloody conquest, murderous domination. The Cayman cult spread out over the Cerro Blanco and down to the vast dryness of the Atacama in that time before its reversal of fortune, attaching itself at each place to the dense and peculiarly human desire to fight back death itself. But then, as now, the Jaguaros had returned. There was defeat for the Cayman clan at the citadel of Chavin. Great and terrible battles through the deep shadow valleys of the endless Marañón, battles resulting in retreat, collapse, and exile. Still skids to a stop, cocking his head to the wind for the moment. He's acutely aware that his speed has increased while his followers have fallen behind. A momentary urge rises within him to leave them to their fate. They won't fare well without him against the mercenaries whose stench permeates the night air. Not to mention the jaguar himself. I am still, he thinks. No difference between myself and the first. This group of followers is no different than the first. Mine. The voice in his head is as unrelenting as the first stills must have been. Think of nothing else. Do as you must. Stop at nothing. Still wheels and sprints back uphill, retracing his step as he races to rejoin his small band of followers. The Cayman has spoken. Hesitation, self-indulgence, or short walker feelings, annihilated by the divine presence. Things are what they are, and Still's responsibilities are clear. Nothing more needs to be known. Thursday, 2044, GMT-8. Too hot. This news, a flash of internal commentary, has an immediate effect on answer. Grasping the lower edge of his sweater, he yanks it up, strips it off over his head, and drops it without looking to see where it falls. The shirt is next. Adaptive skills, carefully honed over the years of experimentation, remove the need for deliberative consideration in moments like these. If it weren't for the waste of time and a loss of storage capacity, the pants would be going next. 
Temperatures in the high 30s are not cold enough to keep him from sweating. Plastic wrap and boot grease, after all, provide an excellent chill barrier, as long as you keep moving. Swept aside by overriding warm currents in the jet stream, the clouds part to reveal the heavens alight with timeless star spectacle of Castor and Pollux, the warrior twins playing ball with the distant lamp of Cirrus. An ancient Quechua gatherer chant streams from his mouth with musical ease. Show you what, yahe, bring me what is needed. Up ahead, the trail begins to cast off faint tinges of persimmon, and a scintillating shiver worms its way through the dark, bordering the path. The color is close. With each step, the red-hued light raiding off the sendero grows more intense, only just ahead. Ensa's sensors are loading up. A formaldehyde stench stings his lips. The mountain's angle flattens as he moves out onto the broad, flat reach of foothill that flares off down to the shore of Ross Lake. Ahead, not more than 300 meters distant, the trail splays out, broadening into a stream of molten orange. He reaches behind and yanks the nine mil from the waistband of his pants. It is now. Running becomes sprinting. Waiting becomes doing. His mouth opens as if to draw in another ragged breath, but instead projects a quavering wall of sound whose belligerent, ragged threat is as familiar to him now as the voice of his mother. Answer falls onto the trail with a vengeance, stretching to gain any possible friction against the earth, increasing his speed at a shocking rate. He fears it might not be fast enough. Move, he urges. He can hear the jaguar's voice in his own. Move, do we not? In the distance, where the trail drops away, his accentuated night vision reveals a band of people gathered at the dark edge of the lake. The promise of contact answers screams to a stop and throws out one hand, sending out a pulsing wave of energy distraction. Like radar, the vibrations bounce off the target, telling answer that his stochastic projection has had its effect. He breaks into a run again, speeding to reel in the catch. Thursday, 2044, GMT minus eight. Cold air bites at coordinator's open mouth. The chill cranks on a loose crown. Pain levering up under her tooth is just another thing to piss her off. If this clown gets away from us, the whole picture changes. Her mind reveals for a moment the schematic flow of the as-is in the world. Outsiders, churchies, no-goes, newtowners, Hindu boys, govies, collective members, and off to the side, a new frame developing a no-name, just-a-face, Kohler, surrounded by the fixed expressions of dead man, bad berries, man, bad fucking berries. We're going to need all the help we can get. Thursday, 2045, GMT minus eight. For a moment, even still, it's paralyzed stricken by the unexpected sensory impact of the pulse as he helps lift their clumsy, insensate passenger over the gunnels of the Zodiac. But the effect doesn't hold him. He screams resentment, anger, and leaps aboard the boat, slapping the slack expression off the faces of those already on board. Only the adolescent prisoner, sitting at an odd angle in the bow, remains witlessly smiling. He looks back at the others still on shore. With me, he screams. Now! The Zapruder spray of Hazlet's head exploding illustrates the urgency of his order perfectly. As the halo of her brain matter settles over them, the spell is broken. Her body slumps forward, 
unceremoniously landing with a splashy thud on the muddy shore. Those remaining on land tumble into the boat, but their movements are somehow sluggish, now as if unseen molasses has overcome them, hampering their every action. Damn little cat! Still presses to expand, rise up and strike the enemy. His body in much better shape these days to stand the rigors of combat, aches to stand, to face the ancient nemesis one-on-one. -on -one. But there are more pressing matters at hand, and there is time after all. Soon enough, more time than the show walkers imagine, he pushes off against the gravelly lake bottom, and the little craft quickly gains buoyancy, still lifts his legs into the boat, and the whine of the turboprop spins up, and the shore begins to recede quickly behind them. Another time, still thinks, the swell slaps at the zodiac hull. Once we are strong again, another time. Please join us next week for the final conclusion of Criminal Magic. Let your friends and family know about our podcast and leave a rating and review if you can. We will see you back here soon.